sorry, this candidate was traumatized by the wars that she was in, quite literally. But we'll get to that after we discuss her really interesting district. Brittany Ramos de Barros is joining us. She's running for Congress in New York's 11th district, held by a Republican, a very pro-Trump Republican. What in the world is going on? This, this story has lots of twists and turns. Uh, Brittany was also organizing director for About Face Veterans Against the War. So Brittany, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. Yeah, no problem. So uh, tons of interesting parts to this. So this was, used to be a Democratic seat, uh, it was Max Rose who held it. Then he lost to a Republican because he ran as Republican light. And given a choice between a real Republican and a fake Republican, people generally choose real Republicans. So he's running again now. You're running as a progressive alternative to him. Brittany, it got redistricted too, if I understand right. So what is this district now? Is it a Trump district in the middle of New York City or no? So I would argue that this district has never been a Trump district. It's been an anti-establishment district. And I think that the reality is, is that you know a lot of people from both sides of the aisle have really understood, uh, misunderstood working class people, right? The issue here has been bigger than red or blue, Democrat or Republican. We are a quintessential blue collar district. You know, Staten Island is the most rapidly diversifying county in New York State. Um, and a lot of people have this image of us as Trump country, but this is really worker country. We've seen that with some of the groundbreaking organizing happening with the first Amazon warehouses ever unionized, unionizing here. Um, and other incredible fights that are happening right here because people are fed up. They don't care about party, you know. The the true majority here are people who feel let down by the system overall, who have checked out, um, who are hope, you know, who have kind of given into this hopelessness and disillusionment. And so, what I think that we're building here, it, you know, we are a progressive alternative, but I think we're a people's alternative. We are people who are saying, look, we are the majority. We have had the power, and if we organize and come together. Things that people have thought impossible become possible, and you know it's 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 right within reach. Even before the district lines were expanded, um, we're waiting on new district lines now, which should be out in, on Monday and then finalized at the end of next week. But you know, with the district that we had before, the district that Max Rose lost, running to the right, running pro-Trump ads, we had a two-to-one majority of registered Democrats. But an 11% turnout in the previous Democratic primary, and so, you know, I think that that what that tells me is that people are hungry. We know that policies like Medicare for all um, are popular at seven, a rate of 70% with the general public, and yet I'm the only person in this race who has the courage to say that that's what we need to invest in, especially after this pandemic that we've just we've just experienced, and we have people getting thrown out. In the cold, um, you know, as we've gone through these layered crises, and I'm the only non-millionaire in this race, and yeah. so you know, I think it's really important that we reframe how how we look at a district like mine, and the agenda that we're running on is the popular agenda with the public. Yes, the old district had was Trump won by ten points, but as you pointed out, the Democrats have a two to one registration advantage. It is super trippy. And the one other guy who did great in this district was Bernie Sanders. 
So your point that it's an outsider district that doesn't like the insiders, etc., is a great point. And this is, but Brittany, this is part of the problem, right? We we can't wait to run in general elections in districts just like this and give them an outsider message that directly appeals to voters that they're we think they're going to love, right? But the Democratic Party's constantly blocking us. So did you? So that leads us to your primary. So. Before I get into anything else, did you just say Max Rose ran pro-Trump ads against a Republican last time? Yes, he ran videos saying literally celebrating the fact that he stood with Trump as if that was a positive thing. He sent out literature celebrating his collaborations with Trump. And I might add sending out literature demonizing China and promoting this anti-Asian rhetoric that led to spikes in anti-Asian hate crimes that we saw. And so, you know, I think that when people show you who they are, believe them. He lost, you know, and it's it's no disrespect to him as a person, as a human, but I think that our communities deserve better and are hungry for better. Um, and in this case, better is just a representative who is taking the time to really connect with our communities of all types. We have one of the largest African immigrant communities in Staten Island. You know, there are just so many of us who have been written off, forgotten. We've been the butt of the joke in New York City, and people feel that. People feel that kind of scorn. And we're right here, this kind of true battleground district. And I think that if we can prove that this is the popular agenda here, then that will have powerful ripple effects across the country. And that is really important for a political project over the next several years and, and, and really decades to build a government that is not a Republican majority or a Democrat majority, but is a people's majority. And we're seeing that a Democrat majority alone right now with the recent vote to codify Roe v. Wade and make sure that we keep the basics like bodily autonomy and the protection of the right to privacy, which has an impact on so many other protected rights right now. We can't pass that with, at the point that we can't pass that with a Democratic majority, then we need to start thinking differently. And what I think about is the fact that we need a majority of working class champions who will really fight for the agenda that the people want and see themselves as deeply rooted and accountable to our communities who are suffering right now. And that's what that's what my race is about. I think that that's what our, our, our project is about for the next several years. And I think that in order to do that, we have to understand really soberly what we're up against and organize accordingly. You know, there are PACs, APAC, other PACs with billionaires, you know, just funneling millions of dollars to smear people like me and many other progressives around the country who are running right now to back, you know, Republicans and Democrats like my opponent who have undermined us and betrayed us time and time again. And when you're a working class candidate like me, that means that you're often going into debt or having to, you know, kind of bend over backwards, even just be able to run let alone to raise the kind of money that's necessary to go up against that. But we've done really well. We've raised over 600,000 in grassroots funds. I'm so proud of that without taking a dime of big real estate money, which is a big deal in New York City or corporate PAC money. But you know, it's gonna take time and we're still marginalized in the House and certainly in the Senate. We have to get our numbers up, that's gonna take time. And you know, I think that it's gonna take us 
really getting focused on the idea that I'm sick of making demands. That's why I agreed to run. I, I'm an organizer. I never thought that I would run. You know, I'm the kind of person who's in the street. <laughs> um, Honestly, I didn't really believe in in electoral politics as a focal point for a long time. And I know a lot of people feel that way. But what became clear to me is I'm tired of making demands of power. I want the people to be in power. And that means that we have to contest to take political power for the people by running candidates who are truly accountable to the people and committed to that agenda. So the great news about this is that the press is actually taking Brittany very seriously. Because I say that is great news because normally progressives don't get that treatment. So I think that they got traumatized by missing AOC and Jamal Bowman winning in New York. And Brittany has raised more money than AOC did or Jamal Bowman did. And so it's gotten the attention of the press and they're going, whoa, a progressive might, might win here. And so by the way, Brittany for Congress.org, when somebody is not only doesn't take corporate PAC money, but is being attacked by corporate PAC money and she's being attacked by millions. From corporate PAC money, you gotta help her out. Brittany for Congress.org, a true progressive in this race. And Brittany, I don't agree with you. I would love to personally insult Max Rose. I anyone running pro-Trump ads in a Democratic area? I mean, I don't care what area it is. If you want to kiss Trump's ass, there's a whole party for it, and it ain't the Democratic Party. And this is a Democratic primary. The only, let's keep it real, Brittany. The only reason anybody would vote for Max Rose is because they got tricked into it in a Democratic primary by the tons of ads that I'm sure he's running, and probably by Democratic leadership who loves incumbents and loves conservative Trump loving Democrats. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I knocked doors for him in 2018 because he raised so much money with D Triple C support so early, um, and you know, also you know, coming from a background with a lot of connections to wealth, um, you know, that gives a candidate like him a leg up. And you know, a lot of us said we want to get the Republican out. The the previous Republican was also terrible, and you know, I don't regret that, but I definitely was really disappointed and felt so betrayed as I watched what played out. You know, we, I never expected him, you know, I understood that he was more centrist than I was even then. Um, but he promised a lot of us in the community that that he would stand by Palestinian community that showed up in in really powerful numbers to organize him, you know, organize for him. Um, that he would show up for progressives who came from all over New York City, including Park Slope, to invest in this race. He promised us that he would fight for Medicare for all. He, you know, all of these things, um, and then you know, it's one thing if you don't show up to fight for us. But it's another thing to literally go out of your way to stand with a wannabe dictator like like Donald Trump and it's beyond it's beyond just those ads you know voting against passing the War Powers Act repeated the War Powers resolutions repeatedly that you know Ro Khanna and others introduced um that were meant to rein in Trump's war powers and simply ensure that he couldn't unilaterally start World War III with Iran when we were teetering on the edge because of an extra judicial assassination yeah. um, that the president at that time, you know, Donald Trump carried out. Yeah. It's wild to me yeah. that you have someone, especially as a, as a former captain myself, knowing what's at stake. 
lives that are at stake, the environmental destruction. War is the culmination of all violence. Imperialism has dragged us into occupation after occupation, war after war, while our neighbors are rationing their insulin. Yeah. You know, and to have someone, especially who is still an officer who is willing to make votes like that. That in my mind betray not just the American people, but also people around the world is just unacceptable. And we don't need to settle for that. And you yeah. know, again, I I don't think that this campaign is about me being some kind of savior in contrast, but it's about people power. It's about saying, look, we are the majority already. Working class people in this district who want change are the majority. And when we come together, we can do incredible things. We are the real face of power here. Yeah, Brittany, one last question as we're out of time here. Look. I have tremendous disdain for Max Rose. He's deeply conservative. He's a hawk. He wants war. He lied about it. And and of course, the reason he wanted Trump to have those powers is because he thought he might bomb Iran. And Max Rose would have loved it if Trump had started a war with Iran. So let's keep it real on who Max Rose is. If Democrats reelect him or elect him in that primary, it's a massive mistake. It's like putting a Republican in office. It's crazy. Anyway, Brittany, last question is, look, you both served in Afghanistan. You did and Max did. You came away with very different lessons than he did. He came away with great, let's start more wars, imperialism and wasting blood and treasure is a great idea. You came up, came back with a the opposite impression. Why? You know, I can't, I can't speak to why Max has taken away the lessons that he did. But for me, I saw the way that I went there a true believer. You know, I went to to school thanks to an army scholarship. That's. You know, I talk a lot about how much we need to confront what it what it says about us that our only real at scale federal jobs and scholar college scholarship program requires you to carry a gun for the government. Like we we need to really think about that. And you know, I am one of the people who went to school thanks to that program, but then I was sent to a war based on lies. You know, And when I went there, I believed I was gonna be protecting Afghan civilians from the bad guys and fighting for democracy. But what I saw was that we were so obviously just adding to the violence, doing a lot more harm than good. And I saw the way that corporations were running the show. I saw that I sat there with a maintenance platoon that was entirely capable of getting a deadlined platoon back online that was a high value asset that was really critical for security. And I and we sat there and we sat there and we couldn't actually fix what and get that platoon back online because there was a corporate contract that said that only corporate mechanics could work on those vehicles, even though we have the parts and knowledge to fix them days and days in advance, which is a big deal in a combat zone. And so, you know, what was clear to me then is that even when you look through the lens of national security, right? Even if you're a person who thinks that kind of big stick military force projection is our best strategy to be safe. This corporatism, the control of corporations over, you know, our government and the kind of unity of both parties, um, the elites of both of those parties, um, kind of collaborating toward that corporate control, really undermines even our national security, even through that lens, right? And so, yeah. it was. It, it just became clear to me, and it took me a while to find the language. But once I realized, I, I joined the Poor People's Campaign. I joined About Face. And I started speaking out because I realized that we have a responsibility to tell the truth. And I was I was threatened, I was put under investigation, smeared in the headlines, you know, threatened with court martial 
for conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman, which is still the title of that charge for sharing literal facts from our own government reports about those wars. Things like the DOD is burning an average of 10.3 million gallons of oil per day. Right, we're bombing seven countries on any given day at that time. And most people can't even name the countries that we're bombing because it's become so quiet and so out of out of sight, out of mind to most people. And yet we are supposed to be the accountability check on a government and the war making and the way that our military is being used and the way that our troops are being sent to kill, potentially kill and die. Um, and you know, so for me, I ended up speaking out about those things because I, you know, I knew that those wars were a betrayal to all of us, to our planet, to our people, to people around the world, to our troops, to veterans. As you know, we have veterans homeless on the street, and some people try to blame immigrants and poor people, and yet, you know, you have half of the military budget, half of an almost trillion dollar budget that goes to corporations, and most people don't realize that. And so, you know, we need leaders who understand the corruptions in that system, see it clearly under and, 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 you know, have the backbone to stand up against it. And the reality is, however disillusioned people feel about electoral politics, at the end of the day, this is, you know, a, a, an arena of incredible power. And, you know, when we look at, our other uh, other countries in the global south, you know, so many uh, Bolivia, many others that have stood up, elected some of the first indigenous leaders, some of the right, like that was because of mass organizing that came together specifically to take political power, to take control of governance and put it in the hands of people who were gonna fight for the people or who they believe would fight for the people. And so we know that it's possible. We know that there's a precedent for it. And I think that we have to be grounded and disciplined in our fight to address these things because we will not codify Roe v. Wade or pass Medicare for all or pass a Green New Deal until we have more working class champions in Congress. That's why I'm running, that's why I need anyone who's watching support um, because you know we have to continue over time. We can't allow our enemies want us to be hopeless. They want us to give in to that disillusionment and to check out because that's how they win. That's how they protect their power. Um, and so I am leaning into hope and determination as a discipline. As Miriam Kaba says, and a determination that this campaign is not just about me, win or lose. We are building power together, organizing everyday people who have been left out, forgotten, ignored, told that they didn't matter. And that is the real power in this country. And it's the only way we're gonna see the kind of bold changes that we really need to see and to save lives and yep. to, you know, to create a future where we can all live in dignity. All right, well, Brittany Ramos de Barros, obviously a truth teller, that's for sure, ready to bring that fire to DC, which we would greatly enjoy. Brittany for Congress.org. Brittany, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. It's great to no be problem. with you. All right, on the TYT Network, we try to give everybody a voice. And so we were going to bring on Dylan Brown, he's a progressive activist on disability issues. And so uh, you might not have heard of the top issues in uh, that affect disability com uh, disabled community, and that's why we want to share it with you guys. So let's find out. Dylan, how you doing, brother? Good. How are you? Excellent. All right. So Dylan, uh, just first, uh, you know, obviously you're in the disabled community. Uh, what are your disabilities? So um, I have never gotten a formal diagnosis. Um, I've had multiple 
visits with neurologists and I've gotten a whole bunch of different diagnoses. Um, basically, I'm just disabled, uh, com- almost completely paralyzed from the neck down. Mm-hmm. I got you. Okay, so obviously it's personal for you, uh, and so we can understand that. Uh, so, Dylan, um, what is a top issue in your mind? Of course, everybody's got different opinions on uh, for the disabled community that you think, man, if we did this, that would be terrific. Well, okay, speaking just for me, um, I require basically twenty-four hour care. Um, if that wasn't obvious. Um, and that care, that kind of irreplaceable care is tied entirely to Medicaid benefits administered at the state level. Um, they have very stringent income asset requirements. Um, and I think the most important thing would be to do what has been done multiple times already. Another expansion of Medicaid to cover the disabled community um, unconditionally. I mean, that care, unlike most healthcare, which healthcare should be universal, but unlike most healthcare, the benefits that I get through Medicaid are basically irreplaceable. Yeah. So let me ask about that. How, I mean, this is a very impolite way of putting it, but how little do you have to make? Uh, to be able to qualify for Medicaid to help you? So you would think that would be a really clear answer, but it's actually not. Um, I live in New Jersey um, and there's a program in New Jersey called Workability that allows you to make more money. How much more money? That's a little unclear because the state website gives a figure, uh, a relative, a relatively high figure of about five, five and a half thousand a month. Um, but at the county level, it's a completely different matter. And um, when I called for my eligibility, the county gave me a totally different figure. They, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was almost, I mean, it was less than half what the state said. and. I did some research, most counties in New Jersey don't list what the income figures are. Um, So you're kind of flying blind. So they're playing with your life uh, because if you lose that coverage, uh, I I literally don't know what what you would do. So you gotta make- I don't either. (laughs) Yeah, somewhere between the 2000 to 5000 a month range. But if you get above that, like let's say you listen to the state and you say, okay, I made four thousand this year, county could say, hey, you didn't qualify for Medicaid, and then you're you're in a lot of trouble. So let's let's yeah, understand that. Let's understand that. So what is the care that you need that if you're like again to put it in politely, if you're not poor enough, you wouldn't get. Yes. So I. I need help with very rudimentary things that you wouldn't even think about getting out of bed, getting dressed in the morning, cutting up food, getting the food to my mouth, um, showering. I need all of it done for me. I can, I can do a lot, but I can't use my arms or legs. So think about anything you do with your hands. I need somebody to do it for me. And I don't think anybody can say they can go a whole day without ever using their hands. Yeah, no, no, of course. I mean, especially 
if we're not in that community, uh, we would be devastated. We wouldn't understand. I mean, we wouldn't yeah. know what to do at all, right? <laughs> and so, if they take that away from you, I, I don't. I literally don't know what happens. So, what you're asking for is to expand Medicaid so that it covers. Uh, it, it doesn't just cover people making two to five thousand dollars, but it covers everybody. Do I understand that right? Yeah, there's no. Okay, I don't think there's an argument for income requirements for healthcare anyway, but there's even less of an argument for it when the care is quite literally irreplaceable and life sustaining. Um, so yeah, it, we've expanded Medicaid twice in American history at least. Um, once to cover disabled adults between that two and $5,000 mark. And once when Obamacare passed to cover low income adults. We can do it a third time. We just have to have the political will to do it. Yeah, and so this is a this is about this specific issue. If we had, for example, Medicare for all, then you would be covered. Thera, yes. However, I do have concerns that because the program that I'm under is not directly funded by Medicaid. It is a program that says if you are Medicaid eligible, you are eligible for this. I do have concerns that an improperly or say incomplete view on Medicare for all an incomplete bill would accidentally exclude that. I do have that concern. But Medicare for all would go a long way to fixing the problem. Yeah, and it is the devil's in the details for sure because there'll Absolutely. be tons of, uh, you know, uh, trading back and forth on provisions, etc., and people get left out, and that would be unbelievably unjust. So, uh, Dylan, you know, it's really interesting because you, you and I talked off air as well, and you're a wonderful guy, uh, but you weren't always a progressive activist. Uh, I mentioned that because you know you were just talking about the need for Medicaid and stuff. But did when you were in the right, did anybody talk about helping people who are disabled or expanding Medicaid or getting everybody healthcare coverage? See, no, not unless you asked. What I've found is even just the normal conservatives I know, they when asked one of my previous aides very Hardline conservative. Um, they often said it's completely ridiculous that I can't get health care just on the basis of my disability. It, there are a lot of conservatives who have a very limited view of what um, aid for poorer Americans should be. But I found that even with the most limited view, most people will say, yeah, the disabled should get it. Um, but you have to ask them. And what I've often also found is not just on the right, but on the left, everyone will say, oh, yeah, we care about that issue. Um, yeah, we should expand Medicaid for the disabled. And then they move on to the next thing and they never pay it any mind again. Yeah, it is so hard to get people to focus and prioritize this issue. So you know, in terms of your activism, now you got to, on top of everything else, be like the world's greatest activist to win on this issue. So, 
<laughs> yeah, now look, now we open up a can of worms because people are gonna wonder like, you were on the right? <laughs> so, uh, so you had an interesting story as to what, what led you there. Um, so yeah, how'd you get there? So the thing that led me there was also the thing that led me out. It was seeing one thing and being told that another thing was happening. Um, I got into politics because of the Edward Snowden leaks and I was confused and in disbelief at how the media just kind of went, no, that's not what happened. James Clapper didn't lie in a Senate hearing. Um, them spying on you is okay. No, of course it's not. It's blatantly unconstitutional. James Clapper did lie. Those are facts. Um, yep. you, you can't. You can't say that didn't happen when I can see it right in front of me. Um, and ironically, that's also the thing that led me out. Um, I saw a lot of people on the right when Trump came down that escalator and he said what he said about Mexican immigrants. Um, they said he didn't say that. No, he did. I can hear it. He's not mincing words. He's not clever enough for that. <laughs> um, so it was just kind of, I'm okay with almost anyone of any political persuasion as long as they're open-minded and intellectually honest. I, I like talking to people I don't agree with. I think it's a lot of fun, but I, I have no patience for people who tell me don't believe your lying eyes. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I might start calling that the Dylan standard. Uh, like, it's such a simple standard. It you know, is. Yeah, don't tell me that what I'm seeing isn't true because I have eyes, I have ears. I, I can tell. I can tell. And and so that Dylan, that's kind of pretty confirming for me because as people who watch the show know, I think that mainstream media drove a lot of people to the right wing by. Constantly lying to them. Oh, politicians are not affected by millions of dollars that they get from lobbyists and PACs and stuff. Politicians are honorable, decent people. I mean, there's tons and tons of lies that they tell you. So, but what's interesting? Okay, so so you saw the lies, and then you went looking for. Well, that isn't true. Let me look for something that is true. How did you come upon the right wing first? Like, did you consider everything, or did, did something lead you to the right wing? Well. I was fairly single-minded in that I was interested in learning more about Snowden and the leaks and privacy violations. And what I found at the time was that the people on the left that I was encountering weren't mad about it. They thought it was fine because it was their guy. Um, so I. Hmm. look, I didn't do as much research as I probably should have. I was 14. Um, oh, you were 14. Uh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I was in high school. Um, I'm only 23 now. Um, so I, I, I was only on the right for a couple of years before I realized, oh, you're all liars too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See, Dylan, I talked to you on the phone. I had no idea you were 23. It, like, you are much wiser than that. So that's why that's throwing me for a loop. Now I totally get it. Okay. And so, and you're about to go to law school, right? 
yes, I uh, I'm going to be attending Rutgers Law in the fall. Ah, to Rutgers. I was I lived five minutes from Rutgers growing up in New Jersey. Um, all right, uh, so I love your story, and I love that you had the intellectual curiosity to go looking for answers. And the intellectual honesty to know who was lying and who was telling the truth about it. <laughs> so, and and I'm thrilled you. that you're on our side now. And and thank you for sharing your perspective with our entire audience. Thank you, Dill. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I hope that people listen and consider it a little more. We're a bigger community than I think people realize, and we're only going to get bigger as time goes on. Um, yeah, this is going to be a more important issue, especially if the left gains more power. All right, Dylan Brown, progressive activist now and and standing up for the disabled community. And we love that you're fighting for what is right. We appreciate it, Dylan. Thank you.